Dear Colgate, I love that you love that I love being at home. You even let me whiten my teeth from home. Because you know how I feel about getting up from my cloud couch. The Colgate Optic White LED Kit gives professional level results in just 10 minutes a day for 10 days when used as directed. And that's why, Colgate, I want you to meet my parents. Because ever since meeting you, I've been living life to the brightest. Colgate Optic White. Find it at all major retailers. You're listening to the new Mutual Audio Network. Welcome home. The following audio drama is rated PG for parental guidance. Hi there, welcome everyone to the Sonic Society episode 636, the world's largest and longest and most awesome showcase of modern audio drama. I'm your host Jack Ward here with my co-host David Alt, who will be signing autographs all weekend on July 24th to the 26th. Uh, uh, good morning everyone, um, what? <laughs> well, <laughs> considering your fan base from the No Sleep podcast, I would figure you'd be mobbed at mad-con.com this coming July 24th to 26th in Halifax, Nova Scotia. In Halifax, you say? That's where the world's first modern audio drama convention is happening. Didn't you know? Where else will you be able to meet up with some of the makers and shakers of the modern audio drama or audio fiction or radio drama medium? I say, is there some place I can get tickets for this amazing affair? <laughs> Funny, you should ask. Just walk your little web browser over to mad-con.com. That's www.mad-con.com. Mad-con.com? That's right, mad-con.com. And for a pittance, you can be a part of audio drama history. And will there be many people there? So many people. The list is too long for us to go through right here and now. In fact, we've got to get to our feature, the phone booth from Keenan Ellis, because, you know, it all begins right here. On mad-con.com? <laughs> no, no, no. No. <laughs> no, on the Sonic Society. That's the ticket. <laughs> Lynn Knox sits comfortably in her firefighter overalls in a plain white tank. The fire chief is a small woman with a soft face, an easy smile, and arms of corded muscle. She has the lazy confidence of someone twice her size. We sit in her fire station, where behind her lies a corkboard overflowing with pictures and letters. Lynn gives me a small tour of the board before our interview. She points to the thank you letters from children and their cats, crude drawings of firemen fighting demons made of flame, and one picture of Lynn handing a soot-covered baby to a crying mother. Ah, you found it. That's Sammy. Found his crib trapped under a burning beam. Got there just in time. His mom is so sweet. She sends me a fruit basket every time he does, well, anything, really. <laughs> first steps, first words, first time he went to the bathroom by himself. Oof. Always with a little note that reads, All because of you. I don't know about that, but this photo is definitely my favorite. I can see why. Yeah, well, uh, I'm going to grab a beer. You want one? You want a beer? Uh, no. No, thank you. Oh. Duh. You're working. <laughs> uh, 
I gotta say, I was surprised when you uh, asked to speak with me. Thought, kind of podcast you're doing, you'd be looking for, I don't know, the more special stories. Uh, your story isn't special? Well, uh, to me it is. <laughs> but it's nothing to write home about. You gonna sit, or is this a standing interview, or... Right, sorry. So, never done one of these before. <laughs> Ooh, I don't know what I'm doing. Where do we start? <laughs> uh, let's start at the beginning. Where were you on B-Day? Ah, uh, I was in my bedroom, wearing my costume. Your costume? <laughs> yep. I was seven when Becca blew, and for my entire life, all I ever wanted to be was a superhero. So, I had this costume, right? This horrible urine-colored yellow onesie with a towel tied around my neck as a cape. <laughs> I thought I looked very impressive, but, well, you can judge for yourself. Lynn hands me a photo of a skinny, freckled girl wearing a food-stained onesie and a tattered towel. The sun beams behind her as she strikes a pose, hands on hips, her chin skyward, her cape flapping in the breeze. It is both impressive and adorable. Looks like a normal kid to me. Ah, uh, yeah, well, what the photo doesn't show is my family. Mom was standing just off frame holding a fan. It was the only way to get my cape to flap like that. My dad was taking the picture and awkwardly apologizing to anyone who passed by. <laughs> and my sister Chloe was sitting in our apartment window, calling me names. Was that hard for you? Chloe? Mm, not at first. I mean, that's what sisters are for, right? Help you build your armor for when you really need it. But the pose helped me block her out. Made me feel strong, invincible, like a freaking superhero. Did you have a name? Oh, yes. Sunshine Girl. The lone light in the dark night. Chloe called me Pistane Girl, which didn't have the same ring, but <laughs> I ignored her. I had the name, I had the costume, and I had the right attitude. All you needed was the powers. Yeah, it killed me I didn't have powers. I knew I couldn't be a hero if I wasn't special, and the only way to be special was to have powers. But I had a mission. I was obsessed. I was going to be Sunshine Girl, no matter what. I tried everything. I let spiders crawl on my hand, hoping they would bite me, snuck into factories, hoping to fall into some unknown substance, and ran towards every superhero battle I could, praying for that fateful accident that would give me what I wanted. I was about to volunteer myself for medical testing when my dad put a stop to it. He grounded me for a month and threw my costume in the trash. I heard him fighting with my mom one night. He had humored this, quote, superhero thing long enough. It was time for me to grow up. It was time that they had a normal daughter. Quietly, my mom agreed. Apparently, the days of her holding the fan were over when my dad said so. How did you take that? Ah, uh, shrugged it off, mostly. It's easy to turn your parents into the villains of your own origin story. So, that night I snuck out and rescued my filthy costume from the dumpster. I told myself a hero overcame all obstacles. And it didn't matter that I had no friends, or that adults looked at me funny, or that my sister was mean to me. None of it mattered, because I was going to be a hero, no matter what. But I didn't consider my greatest villain of all, my older sister, Chloe. What happened? Well, 
It was the summer before first grade. Oh, I remember it so clearly. And I was just about to join Chloe at her elementary school, something she was not very excited about. <laughs> she had worked herself into a kind of queen bee. Everyone treated her with a mix of fear and respect that wouldn't survive if they met her weird pajama-wearing little sister. Chloe saw how helpless my parents were against my crazies, as she called it. So she decided to take matters into her own hands. One day, she skipped out of school early and snuck into my room to find dirt. She found my newsreel. Your newsreel? Yeah, you remember. News stations would have these supercuts of Night Warden doing cool shit. They'd put some Paul Simon over it, make everyone look super heroic. I thought you had to have one to be a real superhero. And you made one. Sunshine Girl is here. Oh, that sounded so bad. Okay, let me go again. Dad, keep it going. Keep it going. Okay. There's no need to fear. Sunshine Girl is here. Hell yeah, I made one. I had it all planned out. I set up my dad's old video camera in the park. Then I placed my cat, Rosie, in a tree. The plan was to dash on screen, strike a pose, and declare in my deepest, most heroic voice, There's no need to fear! Sunshine Girl is here! Let me guess. It didn't work out. You could say that. Ugh. I tried to climb the tree, but fell on my ass. My upper body strength was for shit back then. Rosie was so frightened, she actually climbed to a higher branch. I had to call my dad to help get her down. My first glorious outing as a superhero, all caught on camera. But it didn't matter. All superheroes suffered defeat, only to bounce back. I stuffed the tape under my bed and started making plans for the next one. I didn't even notice when it went missing. But then one day, I came home and heard laughter in the living room. I heard my own voice. I knew what was happening, but couldn't stop myself from entering the room. There was Chloe surrounded by her friends, imitating my heroic pose as my reel played in the background. Her friends were crying with laughter. When they noticed me, an awkward silence fell over the room. Then Chloe mimicked falling out of a tree, and they just broke down. I ran, covering my face, trying to hide my tears. Superheroes didn't cry, but I did. I slammed my door, locking it behind me. I could still hear their laughter sneaking its way under my door, through my opened windows, and up through the floor. I felt trapped, powerless, surrounded by a villain I couldn't defeat, couldn't even fight. I turned and found my costume hanging neatly in my closet. I hated it. Hated everything that it stood for. Hated the way it reminded me of what I could never be. I ripped it down and tried to tear it apart with my bare hands, but I wasn't strong enough. I grabbed some scissors and cut and hacked at my beautiful costume. It came apart easily. It was pretty cheap material in the end. When I was done, I sat on the floor and cried amidst an unwashed towel and a torn-up onesie. I stayed there all afternoon. My parents tried to speak to me through my locked door, but I didn't respond. 
I heard my sister's friends leave and my parents yell at her. Chloe knocked to give me a half-hearted apology, but again, I didn't say anything. Instead, I tied the cut-up towel around my neck and stood. I struck the pose, chin skyward, hands on hips, and tried to feel this confidence that the pose always gave me. But I didn't feel like a hero. I felt like a stupid little girl with a dirty towel tied around her neck. I wanted to disappear. I wanted Chloe to die. I wanted to never have put the stupid costume on in the first place. I wanted everything I couldn't have. But then B-Day hit, and I got everything I ever wanted. I had never heard anything like it before. Never heard anything like it since, to be honest. I followed the sound to my window and saw the shockwave coming right for me. It looked like a tidal wave, a giant wall of pink dust consuming everything in its path. It was moving so fast, it hit my house before I could react. My window exploded. The dust picked me up and threw me against the wall. Shards of glass shot everywhere, slicing through me as if I were paper. I crumpled to the ground, blood pouring out of me. I heard Dad charging up the stairs, throwing his weight against my locked door. I couldn't remember why I had locked it. I couldn't think. Blood loss was clouding my mind. Dad's foot crashed through the door, splintering the wood, but the lock held strong. He looked through the hole, his eyes wild and afraid. Then he choked, his mouth gasping for air. His hands flew to his throat and he fell to the ground and out of sight. A single thought penetrated my mind. My dad is dying. He needs me. The fog retreated. The pain was still there, but the wounds had stopped bleeding. I stood up. The thought kept repeating itself, pounding in my head. My dad is dying. He needs me. I could see him through the hole in the door. He was convulsing, his hands clutching his throat as if he were trying to choke himself. His jerking slowed and then stopped. His hands fell away to reveal gills all down his neck, just like a fish. They were flapping desperately back and forth. I pulled on the door, but the handle was broken. It wouldn't unlock. I couldn't get to him. My dad was going to die. I stopped thinking. I grasped the door handle and pulled. My tiny arm strained, but it didn't budge. So I placed my foot on the wall for a little extra leverage and pulled again, harder. And strength like I had never known came from somewhere, tearing the door completely off its hinges. Through a shower of splinters, I could see my dad his face purple, his lips gasping madly for air. He didn't have a lot of time. I grabbed him by the shirt and pulled. He was so light, like a pillow. I dragged my 250-pound father down the hall towards our fish tank. Then I hoisted him over my shoulders and dumped him fully into the water. Bubbles erupted from his mouth, his new gills greedily drinking in air, and finally... He took a breath. He smiled at me, but I was already turning. 
The apartment was filling with smoke. It billowed down the hallway. With a last look at my father, I charged down the stairs and into the kitchen. It was on fire. Flames erupted from a small dark shape huddled by the fridge. It took me a moment to realize it was my mother. I didn't think. I ran to the sink, opened the cupboard underneath, grabbed a pipe and yanked. It came apart like it was made of Legos. A jet of water shot into the kitchen, quenching the fire and nearly drowning my mother. It took a moment for the flames to die. Mom was curled up in the corner, her clothes and hair burned away, but unhurt. I was about to run to her when I heard a scream from Chloe's room. I was running again, sprinting past my mother, up the stairs, past my father's fish tank, and into my sister's room. It was empty. Chloe was nowhere to be seen. For one mad moment, I thought she had turned invisible. But then she screamed again. It came from outside her window. I ran to the window and looked down. Chloe wasn't there. I heard cursing above me and looked up. Chloe floated above me. She was clutching her bedroom curtain like it was the only thing anchoring her to the ground, which I realized quickly it was. If Chloe let go, she would float up and up and up until there was nowhere else to go. I tried to grab the curtain, but it was out of my reach. I couldn't get to her. Chloe was swearing at me to get her down, but I didn't know how. Then I noticed she was floating three feet below our upstairs neighbor's window. I sprinted from her room, grabbing her bedsheet as I went. I charged out my apartment door, up the stairs, and into the hallway. I found my neighbor's apartment easily enough. Locked? No problem. A well-placed kick ripped the door off of its hinges. I ran through our neighbor's living room, barely noticing him melting into green gelatinous sludge on his couch. I heard a scream and threw the windows open. Chloe's feet were bobbing just out of reach. I tried to grab her anyway, but she was too far. I called for her to let go, that I would catch her, but she was hysterical. I didn't have any time. I was about to lose her. There was only one way to get her down. It was why I had brought the bedsheet. But we were six stories up with nothing but thin air between us and pavement. I didn't think about it. I jumped. For a moment... I flew through the air, my cape flapping behind me, the sun beaming down. Then I hit her, rocking her grip free of the curtain. She struggled with me, but for the first time in our lives, I was stronger. I gripped her tightly, wrapping her in the sheet. Then, using her as a kind of parachute, I let our combined weights bear us softly to the ground, Chloe cursing me the whole way down. We landed lightly. I used the sheet to pull her close. She had stopped struggling. I let myself breathe. They were safe. Everyone was safe. Then I looked up and noticed the world around me. It was burning. Bodies floated into the sky by the hundreds. A cloud of orange gas was melting a nearby apartment building. Cars, buses, and bicycles crashed around me, and a wolf-like creature crouched on the roof of our local diner and howled skyward. All around me, people were screaming, bleeding, and dying. They needed help. I tied my sister down in our lobby and ran back outside. I placed both hands on my hips, raised my chin, and let my cape flap in the breeze. Someone screamed, and I didn't think about it. I ran to help. What happened to your family? Well, mom and dad split about 15 years back. He lives in Lake Huron. 
Found a lady in a real good school up there. They swim around in packs, you know, like minnows. I sometimes take a sailboat out to see him. I've always been too scared to ask if his wife lays eggs. <laughs> Mom beat breast cancer and remarried. He's a bit of a stiff, but seems to make her happy, which is all that matters. Chloe is an accountant. Makes more money than I do and always likes reminding me. But it's pretty normal in the end. Pretty normal. This has been a production of the Fool's Gallery Podcast Network. Today's episode was written and directed by Keenan Ellis, produced, recorded, mixed, and mastered by Joseph Freeman at Freeman Recordings, and starred Allie Leonard and Keenan Ellis, theme composed by Alexander Taylor. If you enjoyed our podcast, please subscribe, rate, and review us online. You can also check us out on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and of course our website, foolsgallery.com. Lastly, please consider becoming a patron at patreon.com slash foolsgallery. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time for the Phone Booth Episode 2, H2O. Welcome to the Phone Booth on the Fool's Gallery Podcast Network. My name is Keenan, and I would like to take a second to thank several of our patrons. To Allie Weir, Alyssa Meyerly, Christopher Hackett, Kimberly Hackett, Judith Hackett, Corson Ellis, Joan Ellis, Kevin Ellis, Jim Young, Lou Silverman, Richard Kaufman, Zach Adams, and Sam Lucci, thank you for your support. We couldn't make this show without you. If you would like to join them, go to www.patreon.com slash foolsgallery and take a look at our rewards. Thank you for listening, and enjoy the phone booth episode 2, H2O. It's uh, Joe Pollard. Hey, Joe. Over here, in the back. Today's interview stands on the far side of an empty warehouse. This place was once the headquarters of the Human Reclamation Project, the brainchild of the woman who greets me with a tired smile and a soft handshake. Her name is Taylor Browning. Let's uh, talk in my office. The echo will be murder on your mic. Taylor stands beneath a banner that reads, Bring Back Our Humanity. Someone obviously had trouble removing it from the wall and gave it up as a lost cause. She looks worn, older than her 58 years. A lifetime of resisting the world Becca Orlovsky built seems to have taken its toll. Come on, you're just in time to watch me clean out my desk. Watch out for the leak. I would ask the super to fix it, but I don't really see the point now. Sit, sit. Sorry about the mess. Moving out can be a real pain. 
I found an apple this morning that had grown legs and was walking away. That was a joke. Sorry, I'm a little nervous. That's all right. What are you nervous about? This story, it's... It's not something I like to relive. I wouldn't have agreed to this if... Well... If my therapist hadn't suggested it. She thinks the retelling will help. Help with what? Letting go. Miss Browning, if you're not comfortable... No, no. This is good. I want to do this. I just need... Let's start before I lose my nerve. I hope you'll forgive me. I wrote some of it down. Just the harder parts. Anything that helps. Good. Good. Okay. Where do we start? At the beginning. Where were you on B-Day? The Isle of the Sun. Where's that? It was an island in the Gulf of Aden. The locals called it Presulando, which roughly translates to the Isle of the Sun. And what were you doing there? My wife asked me to go. Your wife? Geraldine? Yes. Jerry. She was... I mean... We were both anthropologists. On our fifth wedding anniversary, Jerry proposed an expedition. It was her way of being romantic. It didn't interest me much at first, but I could tell right away that Jerry was smitten. Why was that? Her parents were from the mainland, just 30 miles from the island. She wanted to study the land, the people, get in touch with her roots, you know. There was this tribe, the Kanuchi. They were an uncontacted people. Uncontacted? It means they've never been exposed to the modern world. I remember how the idea excited us. An entire society, completely untainted by our technologies, our religion, our prejudices. I remember Jerry calling them pure, uncontaminated. I laughed at that, but agreed to go. I could never say no to Jerry. The Isle of the Sun. It was supposed to be an adventure. And for a few months it was. The Kanuchi were generous. They shared their food, their customs, and several offers to share their beds. <laughs> Jerry described those early days as cushy. And God, she loved every second of it. She spoke the language better than I did. But it was more than that. She was like... I don't know how to explain this. Try. <laughs> you ever hear the saying about the two kinds of anthropologists? No. Not surprising. But basically, there are two kinds. The ones who want to understand people, and the ones who already do. I was the former... Jerry the latter. She would dance, laugh, and sing with them. The tribe welcomed us almost immediately, or at least they welcomed Jerry. I was treated with a kind of polite detachment. It was a small difference, but one that became painfully clear when the chief gave Jerry an honorary tattoo, welcoming her into the tribe. 
He was a strong, charming man. The kind you instantly want to like you. You can imagine I took it pretty hard when I was not offered the tattoo. Jerry held me through the night, trying to make the sting go away. She held it together for me. She always did. As she speaks, Taylor clutches her left shoulder, where a large box-like scar distorts the skin. It's almost like something was scraped away. I do my best not to look at it for the rest of the interview. For weeks, everything was fine. Sure, it was hot and hard, but the tribe was kind, and I was with Jerry. If we needed anything, we would request it via satellite phone, and it would be dropped 10 miles from the camp by helicopter. We would hike out there in the heat and humidity for gear, equipment, food, and water. I thought you couldn't bring anything back to the village. In the beginning, we couldn't. Uh, The whole idea of the expedition was to observe a culture without the influences of the outside world. Corrupting it by bringing things back from drop was out of the question. I would argue that our very presence corrupted our examinations, but that was the cost of doing business. In the beginning, what changed? It started getting hot. I mean, really hot. We were on an expedition in the Gulf of Aden. We expected a little heat, but nothing like this. The sun burned the humidity away, leaving behind scorched air that was barely breathable. Then their well went dry. Then the closest stream. The dry was used to going without water, but as the heat increased, even their options began to run out. They were dying. And it was our job to watch them die. To not intervene. To let it happen. And record. And did you? Jerry came to me a few days before our next drop. She wanted to request more water. She wanted to save them. We fought. I didn't want to destroy our study. I'll never forget the look she gave me. Almost like I was betraying her. She didn't want to be with someone who could watch families die and do nothing. So she ended it. I began to cry, and Jerry said coldly, Don't waste the water. And then she was gone. (laughs) Taylor, would you like to take a break? (laughs) No, I'm fine. (sighs) Where was I? Um... How did Jerry get the water on the island? She had a drinking buddy back at home base who handled the drops. He would sneak us candy bars and our provisions, you know. God, I can't even remember his name. Jerry had it all planned. We had a scheduled drop of 100 mason jars for storage and shipping. Her guy would add an extra zero to the order and fill them with water himself. And how did the tribe react when you brought water back with you? We were heroes. I was inducted into the tribe, given the honorary tattoo I had been so jealous of. Jerry 
didn't cheer with the rest. I was too excited to notice, but her clothes were soaked through with sweat. This wasn't anything new. The heat made puddles of us all. But knowing what I know now, well, that was the night. It was the beginning of the end. That night, though we didn't know it, was B-Day. The world and our lives were about to change forever. But we were feeling pretty good about ourselves. I remember the sky was clear and there was a rare, cool breeze coming over the sea. We thought the pink clouds were from the sunrise. A good omen, the chief told me. Everything was going to be okay. We drank and laughed and drank some more. And through it all, Jerry kept sweating. It was unnatural. She was soaked morning, noon, and night. It poured off of her in droves. I was worried. I called home base requesting extraction at the next drop. I didn't tell Jerry. We weren't speaking. But our study was over. It was time to go home. The day came and we hiked out. I was hoping for an extraction, Jerry for water. But when we arrived, well, there was nothing there. No helicopter, no equipment, no food, no water. And you had no idea what was happening to the rest of the world? None. We couldn't know. Because on our island, there was only one person who had changed. Only one. Only Jerry. It was a week before water rations ran out. Jerry found me lying naked in my hut to relieve some of the heat. I hadn't had a drink in two days, and I was sure I was going to die. But Jerry held a jar to my lips, and sweet, life-giving water flowed into me. I drank deeply, greedily. Where did she get it? She wouldn't tell me, so I stopped asking. It's hard to care about anything else when you're that thirsty. She returned the next night and the next, each time with a new jar filled to the brim with water. Slowly, my strength returned. I pretended not to notice, but Jerry looked gray and wrung out, like she had given too much blood. But we were both alive, and I tricked myself into thinking everything would be fine. And it was. Until a small boy stumbled into my hut and saw me drinking. What happened? They dragged us into the center of the village and threw us onto the ground. The chief was screaming, talking so fast I couldn't make out the words. But I understood his meaning when he held up our half-drunk mason jar. Jerry was pleading with him, trying to explain that I was dying. But then a woman stepped forward, dragging her tiny son behind her. 
He barely had the strength to stand. Jerry's voice grew silent. Someone let out a terrifying scream of anger and desperation, and the tribe collapsed upon us. We fought and clawed for freedom, but there were too many of them. A knife was drawn. I saw it flash through the air. And Jerry's scream was cut short. The tribe froze. I thrashed, trying to free myself, trying to get to Jerry. But when I saw her, she stood there, her hand at her throat, covering the jagged cut that should have claimed her life. Her hands were wet, but not with blood. They were wet with water. Fresh, warm, life-giving water. I couldn't understand that. She... She should have been dead. But... It was too much. I fainted. Leaving Jerry alone. Please... Please just let me finish. I just need to finish. Okay. I woke to tender hands tipping water past my lips. I thought it was Jerry. Her hands were gentle, holding me together. But when I opened my eyes, it was the chief holding me. His voice was deep and reassuring as he asked me to follow him. He led me outside. A line of what seemed to be the whole tribe snaked around the village, each one holding an empty mason jar. I knew where it led before I saw it. Jerry's hut. As we approached, a small child rushed past me, his hands clutching a jar filled with water. I knew what was inside, and I wanted to run screaming as far as I could away from it all. But it was Jerry. My Geraldine. So I stepped inside. She was bound to a post, stripped to her underwear, limp in her bindings that forced her into a kneeling position. It had been so long since I'd seen her naked. I was shocked by how much weight she'd lost. Bones stretched skin to grotesque length. Her eyes burned in her skeletal face. I tried to run to her, but guards with spears jumped between us. They herded me away from Jerry. From the woman I loved. The chief knelt down next to me, placing a massive hand on my shoulder. He was shaking worse than I was. He spoke. His voice sounded far away, and although I didn't recognize the words, I understood him. 
He looked away as an old woman, her fragile hands clutching an empty jar, shuffled into the hut. She placed the jar underneath Jerry and bowed her head. After a few whispered words, she grasped a knife that lay between them. Then she drove the blade into Jerry's belly. I screamed, but my throat was too raw to make noise. Jerry grunted in pain. The wound was mortal, but no blood came out. Just water. It flowed over the knife, the woman shaking hands, and into the jar. She bowed her head and raised the jar to her lips. She drank deeply, greedily. I felt sick. They were drinking her. When she was done, the woman laid the jar back under the wound for seconds. She began to sing a beautiful and sad song. I began to cry. In the end, it was all that was left to me. Jerry raised her head and her eyes met. All the color was gone from her face. Don't waste the water, she said, and managed a small smile. I stopped crying. The chief tried to pick me up, but I shoved him away. I ran for Jerry, but was tackled to the ground. I kicked and thrashed, screaming for freedom, for Jerry. But I was too weak. I was dragged from the hut, past the long line waiting to quench their thirst. I woke the next day, bound just as Jerry was. I refused all water that day. But when morning came, thirst took me again. I was missing time, blacking out and coming to without much warning. When I woke, I was in her tent. With Jerry feeding me water, making me drink. She was still bound, but was able to hold me. I stared up at a face I didn't recognize. Her plump cheeks were gone. So too were the twinkling eyes. She didn't look like Jerry anymore. But this new one still held me in the same way. It had been two weeks since they'd taken her. Every day, they would line up outside her hut and fill their jars. They let me stay with her in the nights. After they drank their fill, I was allowed to untie her from the post and carry her gently to her sleeping mat. The chief wanted us to be comfortable, 
but he made sure I never untied her hands or feet. Jerry was frail. Every breath looked traumatic enough to break her in half. Each day brought more cuts. Each night they healed as if they had never happened. But they did leave a mark. She was losing something. I could never tell what it was, but I felt its absence. She was dying. Dying in every way, but in the body. I knew what I had to do. I held her as she held me and told her to let go. She was holding it together like she always had, but didn't have to anymore. I told her to let go. <laughs> Just let go. And she did. Her hands dissolved and slid right through her bindings. But then she began to lose form. Her elbows and shoulders splashed onto the ground. I called out her name, crying for her not to leave. And she listened. She reformed and curled into me. She smiled. And for the first time in weeks, I saw the old twinkle in her eye. Stop crying, stupid, she said. You're wasting water. <laughs> I laughed. <laughs> she was free of her bonds. We could run. And we did. Out of the village towards the sea. Towards anything. Too tired to plan. Too desperate to care. We hit the beach before long, and the water stretched out before us. We fell to our knees and waited. It wasn't long before they found us. The tribe surrounded us, spears lowered, ready to take us back. The chief stepped forward. His eyes spoke an apology I could not accept. But Jerry seemed to. She kissed me on the forehead and rose to meet him. For a moment, they stared at each other. A lifetime of silence passing between them. Jerry nodded. And then she turned and walked into the sea. The first wave hit her. She stumbled but held it together. The second wave came. Then the third. And Jerry. My Jerry gave in and dissolved into the waves. And just like that, she was gone. I'm, I'm sorry.
Yeah. Me too. I sat on that beach through the night, staring at the foam of the waves. The Kanuchi didn't trouble me. With Jerry gone, there wasn't any point. For a time, the chief sat next to me. We did not speak. I didn't even look at him. But he was there. That night, for the first time in months, it rained. The drought was over. Just in time for it not to matter. When the sun rose, not knowing where else to go, I returned to the village. It wasn't long before the Kanuchi started showing signs of strange powers. Strength, invisibility, everything the rest of the world was already dealing with. I never found out why they developed power so long after B-Day. I never cared enough to ask. I was done studying people. One morning, I woke to a commotion in the village. I exited my hut to find two flying women land in front of the chief. Things had quieted down enough on the outside for someone to open a drawer that held a file that said where we were. We hadn't been forgotten. They were there to take me home. I left the village without speaking to anyone. The chief and I had no words for each other. We both carried the weight of what had been done. I imagine we both still do. I gave the village one last look and then allowed them to fly me away from the Isle of the Sun, away from the Kanuchi, away from Jerry, and towards the New World. And with that, Taylor rises, her moving box under one arm. We wave to the super as we exit the building. She asks me to hold her box as she gives up her keys. I can't help but look inside. The box is nearly empty. Just a picture of a sandy-haired woman beaming up at me. And one mason jar, filled to the brim, with water. This has been a production of the Fool's Gallery Podcast Network. Today's episode was written and directed by Keenan Ellis, produced, recorded, mixed, and mastered by Joseph Freeman at Freeman Recordings, and starred Sidney Blacksell and Keenan Ellis. Music composed by Joseph Freeman. Theme composed by Alexander Taylor. If you enjoyed our podcast, please subscribe, rate, and review us online. You can also check us out on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and of course our website, foolsgallery.com. 
Lastly, please consider becoming a patron at patreon.com slash foolsgallery. Thank you for listening, and we will see you next time for the Phone Booth Episode 3, The Book of Becca. And that's this week's show. Please check out the show notes for more of The Phone Booth at sonicsociety.org. And until next time, I'm David Alt. Thank you for listening. And I'm Jack Ward. Have a lovely morning. The Sonic Society is written and produced weekly by Jack J. Ward and David Alt, with original music by Sharon B. at SharonB.com. All features, interviews, and audio drama shorts are owned completely by their originators and provided to the Sonic Society by Creative Commons Licensing. The Society itself originates from Halifax, Nova Scotia, Canada. Thanks for listening. This has been an Electric Vicuna production. Every other week, right here on Sunday Showcase on the Mutual Audio Network, you get a brand new episode of Bells in the Bat Free, for which we apologize. However, if for some reason you can't get enough Bells in the Bat Free, and after you've asked a professional therapist for help, head over this way on Fridays. Friday Follies has all the old Bells in the Bat Free, going back to 2006, you know, back in the prehistoric days when it sounded like this to get on the internet. (laughs) Anyway, if you want to catch the old ancient Bells in the Bat Free, catch it on Friday Follies right here on the Mutual Audio Network. And we apologize in advance for that as well.